Welcome everyone to the Dining on a Dime podcast, where we give you tips on how to save on your monthly food budget. Now we give you the absolute best foodie news, and our professionals will give you recipes and cooking tips. So let's get the show started. Welcome to Dining on a Dime. Here's what you're going to hear today. First 15 minutes is going to be all about Hanukkah. Hanukkah starts December 10th. Uh, our, our crew will be giving you recipes for Hanukkah. I have some interesting Hanukkah facts that we will go over. Second 15 minutes of the podcast will be the owner of Frappy Joe's is going to join us to talk about his outstanding coffee place. The third 15 minutes will be a new contributor to our show, Gene Bloom. He is a food historian, food educator, and he will be talking about the history of the Reading Terminal Market, which is a famous spot in Philadelphia. We're going to end our show with Mike from the fabulous 196 Flavors website. And that is a fascinating and fantastic website. Mike is going to tell you all about it in the fourth 45 minute or f- the fourth 15 minute segment. Keep in mind our show is done in four 15 minute increments. So each 15 minute increment is just like having its own show. Let's get started. The first official White House Hanukkah party was in 2001, hosted by George W. Bush. Uh, Jeffrey Hoffman was the first to celebrate Hanukkah in outer space in 1993, which I thought was kind of late, but 1993, they celebrated Hanukkah in outer space. That was the first time. Before potato latkes, they ate cheese pancakes, which I thought was interesting. So potato latkes, uh, if I'm saying that right, are popular now, but before that, they, they were cheese pancakes. The word Hanukkah means dedication. Uh, There was a holy light that burned. They only had oil for one night, and the light ended up burning for eight, and that is why Hanukkah uh, is celebrated and the food is cooked in oil. Keep in mind that I am Irish Catholic, and I wrote this show for our great friends that celebrate Hanukkah. I, don't, I wanted to give you guys some respect, and thank you guys for listening to the show. So this is why we wrote the first segment. Uh, in the beginning, money was given during Hanukkah, but since Christmas became so popular, uh, gifts started being exchanged. So let's go to our fabulous cooks. Hey, guys, what do you guys think? Uh, you guys have any ideas for Hanukkah? Uh, any good recipe tips? <laughs> um, I mean, one of the biggest things that I see um, for celebrating that would be the latke- latkes or latkes, if you will. Um, they are definitely something that is it's like universal thing, too. I mean, everybody kind of has their version of it. Right. But, you know, you basically take very finely chopped potatoes and, you know, roll it and then fry it. I It, it can be flat. Um well, mostly it's flat, but it's absolutely delicious. And normally, you know, you serve it with applesauce or sour cream. So, you know, that's one of one of the things that I love when I'm going to a restaurant and, you know, enjoying um, a Hebrew-based meal. Nice. That's nice. 
Matt Maritair, alcohol expert. What is your tips for uh, Hanukkah foods? Well, uh, Manishma, everybody. Yes, uh, absolutely. Apparently, that's what up in Hebrew. <laughs> yeah. Was that what you were looking up? Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love to know my little slang terms. You've you, you got to be able to get around, move around these parts. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I'm not super well-versed in sort of this this style of cooking, but I do know that they have these awesome... Uh, sort of Middle Eastern flavors, okay. right? Because it's all uh, – you get similar foods all in that sort of Mediterranean, Mideast region. So one of the things that I was looking up sort of in prep for this show, and it's in the potato cheese area. Okay. Um, but it, it's called a uh, – <laughs> Okay, yeah. (laughs) I I psyched myself out. It's called a bareka, and it's sort of a potato and cheese sort of stuffed uh, walking pastry, right? So you deal up your potato, your cheese. uh, Usually you think about something like a feta or a kashveka cheese, and you combine those. You cook it for maybe about an hour or so. You get some nice salt and pepper going, and then you have it rolled into a... like a small little, you could do phyllo, you could do puff pastry. Sort of depends on what you like. I like a nice flaky phyllo okay. if it's me. But and then you bake that, you fry it up, you get your sesame seeds, and it's delicious. It's a quick little warm pockety treat, and it's just it's one of those things that you can eat and you feel better afterwards. It, actually, it, it's very comforting. I'm I'm going to bounce off of that because it seems like potato seems to be our, our theme right now. Um, and I'm going to bring up the knishes that's on our list um, to talk about. And, you know, it's something else that's a, a potato-based thing. And because you're talking about phyllo dough, you know, nice and flaky, um, this is actually, you know, a, a, a walkable item, too, where you where – you basically make, make uh, mashed potatoes and then you take pie, essentially pie dough, um, and you're rolling it up, um, you know, and then baking it in the oven. But what I like about knishes is that you're not, you know, like you're not geared towards having to just have a basic like potato. You know, they I've seen places where they're doing it with potato and cheese, like you had mentioned, Um where they're doing potato, feta, and spinach, but coating it in that dough and then, you know, baking it in the oven. And, you know, I've seen it where it's just a little handheld thing, but then there is a a place where it's actually quite large and it's more like holding it, it's up to your face and and it's a little wider than your face. Um, Obviously, that's something that you would uh, share with somebody or, you know, unless if you have a, like you're hangry and need to eat. Right. Um, But that's something else that's a popular item. That's actually great. And the reason, the inspiration behind writing a Hanukkah segment is because I was listening to a bunch of food, quote-unquote, food uh, podcasts, and none of them covered Hanukkah. It was all Christmas. And I'm like, wait a second. We have some wonderful uh, listeners that celebrate Hanukkah, so I wanted to you know, make sure I uh, respect them and wish them all a happy Hanukkah with this segment. Yeah, and like, um, like I'm Italian Catholic, right. and my people... We don't do breakfast very well. In fact, I'm I'm convinced no one in Italy eats breakfast. They just have like a cup of espresso and then they go about their days. But 
like uh, growing up uh, in Jersey, there's always the diners, right? Right. And what's better than a ho- challah bread French toast? Yeah, Nothing. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally the true. best it's bread so to use. It is. Yeah, because it, it soaks up all of yeah. that that you know the base of the eggs and vanilla and you know sugar, cinnamon, everything. It's just oh, so good. That is actually a good point. Yeah, I had that before and I loved it. Way Matt better Maritea, than a frittata. Matt Maritea, <laughs> let's give the folks some Hanukkah facts from your list, and then Amaris uh, will follow you. Go ahead. Well, I think one fact that we should all know, and especially for managers who have to send out their, uh, you know, maybe their happy Hanukkahs, happy holidays, uh, greetings. Hanukkah can be spelled several different ways, yes. and all of them are correct. That is a thing, because a lot of people said to me, oh, is it C-H or is it H-A? According to my research, all spellings are correct, because there are several ways to spell it. Go ahead. Yeah, and... Uh, you know, uh, there's uh, a type of sort of it's a Jewish style donut uh, called a uh, serfanat, and roughly at this time of year, uh, about seventeen and a half million of them are consumed uh, in Israel uh, during the Hanukkah season. So a, a jelly donuts. That's a big part of Hanukkah. Yeah, that, yes. It's huge. Jelly filled donuts. Yes. Yeah. I was watching it. We I was just talking about it. They did it on Holiday Baking Championship oh, wow. this year. Yeah. And they had uh, Duff judging uh, everyone's version of it, and he was just—he was in his little slice of little slice of heaven. <laughs> um, the date changes every year, so Hanukkah, much like Easter, for those who have to translate this to another holiday, kind of jumps around. Uh, in 2013, Hanukkah actually overlapped with Thanksgiving. How about that? So you got a double dose. You know, maybe maybe some brisket made it to the Thanksgiving table. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, the Grand Army Plaza in New York has the pro- easily the country's largest, perhaps the world's largest menorah. How about that? Yeah, that's interesting. Yes, and uh, one of the first uh, one of the first acts of you know uh, acknowledging Hanukkah as a holiday happened in 1951 when Harry Truman accepted a menorah as an official gift from the Prime Minister of Israel. And that was a very big deal at the time. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, and Jimmy Carter, actually, Matt. Jimmy Carter was the first president to attend a public candle lighting for Hanukkah in 1979. Oh. So that was interesting. Go ahead, Matt. You Good can for Joe. And then Amherst is going to take over. Yeah. Because um, the guy who wrote the show did a brilliant job. Yeah. I want you to. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Do two more, and then we'll give it to Amherst. Yes. Uh, we mentioned, I believe, candles are typically lit left to right on yes. the menorah. Um, frequent date changes. I think that we're actually within Hanukkah right now. No, it's the 10th. No. Oh, it yes. is the 10th? Yeah. Okay. Almost there. It's Thursday. Yes. When this show is published and you're downloading it, uh, it'll be the 10th. <laughs> yeah. I'm proving that I am also not Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> so any other uh, interesting things, Matt, or should we throw it to Amherst? We have about four minutes. Yeah, I think uh, I think I've exhausted my list, so let's throw it on over. <laughs> He's exhausted his list. And, I, and I'll catch it with my list. <laughs> Go ahead, Amherst. Um, so the chocolate gold coins are part of playing dreidel. So dreidel, 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 that, that little toy that they yeah, spin. The top. So apparently the jo- chocolate gold coins are part of that. Oh, okay. So they're not only something that they receive after um, after speaking and 
reading out of their um pardon the fact that i'm i'm blinking yeah the torah yeah the torah Torah. thank you um thank you for helping me out guys (laughs) (laughs) i'm really showing my lack of knowledge here um well that's why i wrote the show no yeah no because i'm so happy you pointed that out i don't the reason i wrote the show is because we have a lot of people that celebrate hanukkah that need to be respected and and, and, I, and yeah but and the I, people that don't are learning about yeah exactly it. so that's interesting I'm glad and it's it's that. really sad because i really don't know enough about it um so you know and, and because I, i'm so geared towards christmas yeah that's, but um I'm glad you said that. Yeah. So so after they read the Torah, they they get the chocolate coins. Um but so part of part of also giving out the gold coins the Or the, cho- the Hanukkah gelt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's the Hanukkah gelt. That's correct. You uh you get the chocolate coins. Um <clears throat> there was in celebration of Hanukkah. And, you know, speaking of things that we've not done, uh, the first bar that was Hanukkah themed opened up in Boston last year. I love that. That's great. So they had a pop-up bar, right, in Boston, and they made it Hanukkah-themed. I think that's awesome. That is awesome because, you know, and hopefully they not only had it themed that way, aka, like, decorated, but hopefully, you know, some people, you know, while they were drinking, (laughs) retained some of that information while they're drinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or learn something, I should say. Um, Just riffing off of that, when you uh, talk about a a Hanukkah-themed pop-up, we've got a couple different kosher alcohols that they probably served there, like uh, Absolute, Stoliachina, Square One, Lucid uh, Absinthe, actually kosher. Huh. Yeah. So you can hallucinate. You, you can hallucinate know. while keeping kosher. You can hallucinate. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. That's great stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I almost don't want to like continue because that was actually funny. That was actually great. Yeah. Go ahead, Amherst. Um, we got one more. Let's so do two more. Also, speaking of um, celebrating, Marilyn Monroe, who is iconic in the U.S. Sure. Well, across the globe, um, she owned a music playing menorah. Oh, no, it played. It was a menorah that played music. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Which is, you know, kind of a cool thing. That like is a, pretty cool. Little uh, factoid there. So, and then uh, going, throwing back to, you know, our cooking, traditionally Hanukkah has foods made with cheese um, that's typically also fried in oil. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Because the oil was the miracle oil that burned for eight days. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, so, and. I'm also going to mention the fact that the challah bread, they always set aside a little bit of the dough um, as an offering. Excellent. So, And we want to wish our great listeners who celebrate Hanukkah a happy Hanukkah. And we just wanted to show you some respect and do a little bit of Hanukkah talk. Let's go to break. And then when we come back, we're going to have our very special guest. Check out our new podcast, Learn About World Cuisine, where we travel to a different country from around the world each week and give you fascinating facts about both the country and the cuisine. Our world traveler gives you his real-life experience in the country, and our wine expert gives you the best wine pairings with your cuisine. Our podcast is available on all platforms, or you can simply Google Learn About World Cuisine to listen to the show. Okay, we are back. We have about a minute 
uh, that we can discuss. Uh, Matt, any other recipes on that list uh, for Hanukkah, for our, our great listeners who celebrate Hanukkah? And then hopefully we will be able to go to our special guest. Margaritas. Oh, hey now. Patron is actually kosher. Really? Yes. Patron is uh, one of those uh, included on the list of kosher alcohols. Right. And it's uh, yeah, it's very good. I mean, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't like uh, a, a nice margarita Absolutely. Uh, here and there uh, from times. Um, I know another uh, pastry type item because I... I'm sort of an amateur, kind of a home baker. Right. I, I love watching those types of shows. Um, but the uh, rugelach uh, is something that's very good, and it sort of harkens back to a little bit of my Polish heritage on you know, <laughs> on mom's side. Right. It doesn't come up too much, but uh, fresh out of the oven. They're super buttery, flaky. They've got that cinnamon. Oh, we have so our good. special guest, Matt. That was brilliant. Thank you. Special guest on the phone, Emerson Paul. <sighs> Hi, welcome and welcome and thank you for joining us. I am bringing Sheetal Shah, who is the owner of Frappe Joe's in Edison, New Jersey. Sheetal, thank you for joining us. How are you guys doing today? Outstanding. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So I found you um, by chance while I was traveling, and I actually was so like amazed with the the food offerings that you had. I, I reached out to you to you know to bring you on to our show, um, and I believe it was not too long ago that I I had joined you again just to take some photos. So why don't you talk a little about what brought you into doing this startup of Frappe Joe's? So, yeah, yeah, wonderful. My, uh, my background is in coffee. I've been doing this for about 20 years. Started with a major franchise organization, and that relationship did not work out too well as I was exiting my time with that major franchise, I had this crazy idea of bringing high quality coffee and unique good food together and began a path towards seeing that vision through. Uh, about eight years later, we have Frappe Joe Coffee. And so you had um, quietly opened back in October of 2019, prior to everything hitting. Um, and when it did, you were starting out <clears throat> preparing for your grand opening. So why don't you talk about what you learned during this shutdown time? You're slow, you know, it slowed you down a bit. It, so you learned a little bit more um, while you while our shutdowns were happening. Um, now tell me how you kept it going. Let me know, you know, talk, tell our listeners all of the amazing things that you do because you, you make your own coffee blends. Yes, yeah. So when we came into this location, uh, we opened it in October 2019. And the idea going in was to slowly build out the menu the concept store that we were operating prior to Frappe Joe, um, that was more targeted towards the lunch and dinner time crowds. So the one thing we didn't have was that breakfast and brunch component to it. So we figured we can slice and dice the menu up, 
be able to craft a menu targeted for the morning time travelers, the early lunch brunch crowd. So we began a journey, took us about three months to put it all together. And the most important part about it was to make sure that what we're putting out there is going to create demand from the market that was going to have repeat transactions. It was going to generate the buzz that we were hoping for it to generate. So we took our time and we thoroughly tested the different components. We ended up with a menu that includes fresh baked goods, including a donut platform, uh, eggs with Mediterranean inspiration uh, items, and a very unique coffee platform. We were putting our menu to launch on March 4th. Uh, We released it. We had incredible demand right from the launch of it, which ran for about a good week. And then it was like hitting a brick wall. Uh, Traffic stopped. Cars on the road weren't there anymore. Uh, We had invested a significant amount of time and significant amount of capital to create this menu to get the concept started and we were literally seconds away from making a decision to pull the plug uh because the the costs were getting out of control the traffic wasn't there we had no idea what this new environment was going to bring and rather than kind of keep funding it pushing it we were literally seconds away from making a decision to pull the plug when we got this call from the nearby hospital, JFK Medical Center. They had, we had been sending them different items as we were creating the menu our donuts, bagels, boxes of coffee, different Mediterranean inspired foods. And just to create awareness of who we were, we were sending it to them. When I got a call, as the pandemic was really escalating in the early spring, say, hey, you guys used to send us some food. Our staff really appreciated it. We are now working our tails off, double shifts, triple shifts. You know, uh, we're looking for ways to boost morale in the ER. Is it possible for you to drop off some more goodies for us? And told them we'd be there the following day. We sent it out. And that triggered a huge response from the community where our customers that had been patronizing us prior to the shutdown in New Jersey came in. They started handing us cash saying, can you keep that going to the hospital? And that ended up snowballing into a total of $23,000 that we had gotten funded for from a major charitable organization, our community customers, a GoFundMe page, plus our staff members contributed their tips during the time to keep that going to the hospital. We ended up servicing them for seven straight weeks, twice a day, and coming out of it while we were reopening the state, that started to pay off. Now, the market that we're in, we're up against the biggest names in the business. Dunkin' is there, Starbucks is there, 7-Eleven, McDonald's, all within a quarter mile radius of us. And 
our initial expectation was it was going to take us at least a good 24 months to build the awareness that we were hoping to build. We managed to pull it off in a matter of three months. And um, that's so because of the going, and that's because of the the hospital staff and the word of mouth, correct? <clears throat> exactly, exactly. They, that that really helped us, you know, uh, gain awareness and gain traction. You know, at the end of the day, we're a small business, right? The small business community are the ones that are the fabric that hold the community together, right? I mean, there there are many parts of it, right? You've got your municipal element to it. You've got your religious elements to it. You've got your school element to it. And then you have the small business community behind you as well. Um, when they needed something from us, we step up, right? Um, I was part of a major franchise before. And then we would always have requests for donations, requests to do this, requests to do that. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't help us. You know, we're, we're, we're a big name, right? Uh, for us, the big name carries a lot more weight than doing little things. Whereas a small business owner, on the other hand, those little things add up to big, great things, right? And that's why it's so important to really look at you know, who the small business players are in your local community and see what we can do to support them because in times of need, they're going to turn around and give right back, right? Um, you know, it, it, they've got more flexibility. They don't have to go through some corporate structure to get approvals. They've got the authority to do what they need to do on the spot, right? And they're going to be willing to do it with a lot more pride than someone just packaging up a ton of donuts and coffee. Ex you know, we're going to put their heart into making sure that they're delivering a high quality product. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you do have a high quality product. Now, before I, because Matt, one of my co-hosts, has a question for you. And before I throw it over to him, um, what is the GoFundMe account that people can donate to? Uh, the GoFundMe was, uh, oh, gosh, it's been a while, but... Uh, the JFK uh, operation or feed me operation. It was, um, it's, been, it's been a while. I mean, it is uh, still active. We do still generate some uh, contributions through it, which uh, do get turned around and given right back to the community. Um, but the exact name, it slips me at this point. Okay. Now, Matt, what, what's your question for Sheetal? Well, Sheetal, I was uh, looking up, uh, you know, some of the things on the menu and on the website, and I'm a bit of a coffee nerd, a bit of a coffee snob, and <laughs> I, I was looking through at how you we guys, I, I was looking through at how you guys describe yours, and I saw chicory and cardamom, and I think those are flavors that may, you know, if somebody's looking at the menu and they're not, say, an experienced coffee drinker, or maybe they're just sort of breaking out of that Duncan Starbucks 7-Eleven style rut. <laughs> uh, how would you describe those? Uh, and how can uh, so that you know someone isn't intimidated when they see something different on the menu? That is a very so, good question. We, yeah, no, thank you, man. No problem. So, our goal is to bring what we call old world spicing methods to our coffee in a modern way. Um, if we think about the history of coffee and how it traveled throughout the world, it was really that Mediterranean region that embraced coffee, 
and it became so embraced that it was part of their day-to-day culture. And to give you an example, at that time, you weren't sure if you're going to go to the market and get sweet coffee beans. When I say sweet coffee beans, I mean uh, beans that were processed through ripe cherry fruit, right? Uh, ripe coffee fruit. Um, or if you were going to get something that was totally sour, mm-hmm. you know, uh, whether it was going to be an Arabica variety or whether it was going to be a Robusta variety, you did not know at the time. So you took a chance, you bought coffee, went home, roasted your coffee, you grinded it and you brewed it and you see the end result after you taste it. The culture back then, uh, especially the Arabic culture, the lady of the house, if she ended up buying a batch of sour beans, she would take that, put it into the corner of her cabinet until she found good quality beans in the market that she was happy to present to her house guest. And generally, it would be served with a family recipe. Family recipe meaning, you know, various brown spice notes would be introduced to the coffee, Mm -hmm. giving it flavor. At that time, we didn't have vanilla, we didn't have mocha, we didn't have hazelnut. It wasn't until coffee traveled to the European countries that those flavor profiles were ultimately developed. But when coffee began its consumption in the Arabic world, it was really driven by spice infusions, flavoring. And yep. if you were not a welcome guest into the house, if you were not a welcome guest into the house, the lady would then pull those bitter that, coffee beans that she bought and stocked away. Those sour beans, yep. <laughs> now speak- and she would serve it to the guest. <laughs> and, and the guest that got a very sweet cup of coffee realized that they were not welcomed into the home. Oh, wow. Right. So if you, if, go ahead. If you got a very fragrant, very flavorful <laughs> cup of coffee, you were welcomed, you were invited to stay, and what we're bringing into the market as Frappe Joe is that old world spicing techniques. That's nice. Now, we have right. about they, three... They work well. Sheetal, we have about three more minutes. Um, I wanted to just, you know, ask you how you bring all of your coffee into your foods. And also, um, before we go, I want everybody to find out how they can find you on social media. Yeah. So, you know, uh, what we do here is we try to bring that 360 element to uh, coffee where food spices incorporated into our coffee platform. Coffee is used as a spice into the food platform. And to give an example, we do something that's called a coffee rub chicken, right? Ooh, yeah. uh, what coffee does as a spice, it brings flavors like cumin, turmeric, salt, pepper. It just melts it together, creating a very unique taste. Uh, coffee is inedible, right? It's a seed. You can, you know, it, it'll soften. You can digest it. Um, we also do something called a coffee barbecue sauce, right? Uh, where our recipe is created with a batch of coffee, right? Um, in the coffee menu itself, you'll see the elements of cardamom, clove, chicory, as we had talked about. But uh, that's a 360. It goes into our bakery platform also. We do a donut called the American Beauty. It's a rose cardamom donut. You'll find those flavor tones throughout the whole menu. Which was... Like, uh, for people that are looking to check... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that was... For people was... that are looking to check this out. Uh-huh. 
Go ahead, Cheadle. Where <laughs> can we find you? Yeah, if so anyone that's looking to find us, they can uh, take a look us up on Instagram at uh, Frappe, what are we, Frappe underscore Joe, and on our website at Frappe-Joe.com. And you are located at One State Route 27 in Edison, New Jersey, correct? One State Route, Edison, New Jersey, Lincoln Highway at the corner of Lincoln Highway and Parsonage Road. And for everyone out there, I went up there. I've had his food a couple of times now. It's absolutely amazing, full of spices. You can taste the coffees, um, the chicory, and and the the warming flavors from the cardamom throughout your food. I loved meeting you. I loved being able to enjoy what you had to offer. And thank you so much, Sheetal Shot, for joining us on, on Dining on a Dime. Oh, I appreciate you guys having me on. And while we were on, I actually did look up the name of the GoFundMe. Oh, good. It's Feed Healthcare Heroes. That is fantastic. Thank you very Thank you. much. Thank you so much. It was an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having us, and best of luck. And hopefully we get out of this in a, a better environment in a couple of months. Absolutely. Thank you. And that was Frappy Joe's. And I, I think we will get out of this in a better place from businesses like that, from people like Sheetal. Absolutely. I, I think we're trending onwards and upwards. And the greatest part about that interview. I got the Hanukkah spirit. The great, the greatest part of that interview was he did something good for the healthcare workers, and it, it ended it up. It came right back came to Came right him. back yep. to him. All right, let's go to break. When we come back, we have our food historian uh, talking about the history of the Reading Terminal. We'll go to break. You can find the Dining on a Dime podcast on social media. On Facebook, Dining on a Dime, the number one. On Twitter, at Dining on a Dime, the number one. And on Instagram, KJW1972. Please subscribe to our show. We are available on all podcast platforms, including iHeartRadio and Spotify. Okay, we are back. I'm very excited about our next guest. Uh, he's going to be a regular contributor to the show. He is a culinary educator, a chef, a catering and event specialist, and consultant. He's a lover of all things food, beverage, and hospitality. Gene Bloom, welcome to the show, my friend. Well, thank you very much for the introduction. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, hello to you as well. <laughs> and we're talking about the history of the Reading Terminal. That's a fascinating we are, topic. We are. It is, it is such a great pleasure to be actually discussing the Reading Terminal. And to start off by wishing everybody a very happy National Brownie Day. And hope everybody had their chocolate fix. And even more importantly, as we get into this today, is... National Pretend to Be a Time Traveler Day. So one of the things I'm going to ask everyone to do is kind of uh, pretend to be a time traveler as we go back in time and really discuss uh, a little bit about the Reading Terminal Market and what it's all and what it's all about. Uh, Kevin, as you know, we were just recently at the Reading Terminal Market and you know, we visited some cheesesteak locations, and one of the locations we had visited is Spatero's for a cheesesteak and had a wonderful cheesesteak there. But, you know, a little bit of great trivia to start off with. That is one of the original two vendors 
that still remain at Reading Terminal Market. They've been there since the market opened in 1893. Now, they didn't sell cheesesteaks. They sold an olive tapenade uh, sandwich, and they sold buttermilk. But a little bit of great trivia about the market itself. They are the only, at that and Bassett's, which is ice cream and dairy, are the only two remaining dating back to 1893. So, as we talk about traveling back in time, it's really important to take a step back over a century, actually two, to think about what things were and what they are now. Like the Ferry Building Marketplace in San Francisco, the West Side Market in Cleveland, the Milwaukee Public Market, or any of our great central markets throughout the states. Reading Terminal Market here in Philadelphia has been an integral part of the city's landscape, diversity, and culture from the founding of the city on. And in many ways, the market really reflects what is great about this country. If you're a food lover like me, and obviously you are because you're listening to this radio show, the Reading Terminal Market and any other market is just filled with wonder and joy as you explore everything in there. So as we talk about it, I want you to focus on, you know, what it took to get the market from where it is, the great story of it, to where we are today in COVID times and how they're dealing with that. The market's origin traces its roots to what was originally called the Jersey market. And if you're not familiar with the city of Philadelphia, we are directly across the river from the Delaware River from New Jersey. And the majority of vendors came across the river on barge and they set up in stalls called shambles, which was an apt description of them because they were basically shambles. They were run down leaky sheds that occupied the first couple blocks of High Street, which in the city of Philadelphia we know now is Market Street. And at this time, this is all outdoors, correct? It is outdoors. They were just leaky sheds on the first couple blocks of, of High Street that ran from the river on up to about 3rd Street. So, so, uh, so as we get... Go ahead. No, no, it's all right. Keep going. Yeah. So as we get into, you know, the, the mid-1800s, the shambles, which were city-owned shacks, and they collected rent on them, um, began to become a blockage for the carriage traffic. But more importantly, they were deemed a health hazard because of the abundance of rodents, pests, and unsanitary conditions they were there that existed. So... In and around 1859, the city officially dismantled the shambles and moved them to two blocks, 11th and 12th, on Market Street at that time, which was renamed because it was the public market. Those two markets were called the Butcher's and Farmer's Market, and the other market was Franklin Market, named after our most famous citizen here in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin. Then in 1890, the Reading Railroad bought that property and wanted to build a train shed. And this is where the persistence of the vendors and the citizens of Philadelphia really came into play. They bought the property and were about to build a train shed there for the Reading and Pennsylvania Railroads, but the vendors refused to leave. They just absolutely were not closing up our stalls, just 
stayed on and forced into an agreement with the Reading Railroad to actually build the train shed above the market and keep the market in place in the basement or in the first floor area of the train station. Hence the name Reading Terminal Market because it was actually in a train terminal. If you take yourself back in time to that and we walk to market, which was a Francis Kimball designed train shed with the market below it. It was one of the largest single span arch train sheds in the world at the time. And later on, it became a glass enclosed train shed. And at one point in time, actually was the largest glass enclosed train shed that existed in the world. But if you took a walk through the market back then, what would you see? You would see sawdust covered floors. But the early innovations were really stood out. The market was laid out in 12 aisles, east to west, and four extremely wide avenues running north to south. It had the, capa- it had the capability of holding 800 six-foot species, and it was 78,000 square feet in size, which back then was one hell of a market. The market opened with a state-of-the-art refrigeration system. Now, you were talking 1893. It opened in February 22nd, 1893, a state-of-the-art refrigeration system that was built in the basement. It had half a million cubic feet of space broken into 52 individual rooms that ranged anywhere from 15 degrees to 35 degrees to accommodate meat to eggs to produce. The system, when I tell you, was so advanced that the staff required to run it was larger than the staff required to maintain the building itself. And it was a system of um, uh, ammonia and brine, so it was a very complex system. But in order to offset the price, the terminal, again, came up with a very innovative thing to do. They started leasing out space in the refrigeration area. And some of their most famous clients were Pennsylvania Hospital for Medicine and a lot of local breweries, including my favorite here in the state of Pennsylvania, Yingling. Yingling used to have the Reading Railroad bring in all their hops, store them in the basement, and then as they needed hops for beer production, they'd haul them back out. So, you know, Yingling Beer owes a great thanks to the city of Philadelphia and to Reading Terminal Market, if you ask me. And maybe they could drop off a truck of beer in the near future for us. Yeah. <laughs> and what we decided to do, uh, Gene, is when you give your educational courses on the show, we're going to uh, we're not going to talk until you're about until three minutes before your segment is done. So keep going. Okay. Uh, keep going. So in okay. about three minutes, we're going to start interacting. But we want you to give your educational courses for our listeners. And then we will we will uh, interact with you in about three minutes. Go ahead, Gene. Keep going. Okay. So the early days, the innovation that took place in the early 1900s, the market was doing really novel things, like a delivery system in nearby. And they had young boys that they hired. They actually called them the market brats that would deliver nearby. They also used the trains to deliver baskets of products to area train stations along the Reading and Pennsylvania Railroad where people in the suburbs could deliver. 
They were one of the first public markets to have a trucking system to deliver every hour on the hour to the resorts in New Jersey, along the beach, or to suburban counties. Even when we get into depression area, when everything was really hit hard, the market was able to innovate, pivot, and change and bring local small produce farmers and local small farmers into the market and keep everything going, as well as providing much-needed food at reasonable prices for the citizens of Philadelphia. You know, it's an amazing story of innovation. When uh, the Depression era was coming to an end, and we get into the late 1930s, and the railroads were hit hard, and everybody was hit hard, the market still maintained 10 of its original 64 contract vendors that were full-time. So from 1893 to you know 1940, they maintained. Then you get into World War II, and they were able to even keep going then with a shortage of labor, and they were bringing in a lot of women to work there, and the market was integral in providing food to the citizens of Philadelphia when everything was being rationed, and the big producers were supplying the military and the war effort. So the market is really a success story of total innovation. But then you get into the 60s and 70s when the market hit its low. The railroads took a beating. There was no more investment by Reading. The roof was leaking. The building was in, in deep trouble. Um, as we get into 1971, the railroad was forced into bankruptcy. Um, in 76, Reading Railroad closed altogether, and it became an asset of the Reading Company as opposed to Reading Railroad. And that's when really the lack of investment hit hard. The Reading Company then leased out the property for a short time to a company who raised the prices and totally ran down the market into a total disarray. And then by the 1980s, the Reading Company was forced to take back but they had some innovative management that did a couple of unique things. The first thing they did is look around the city and discovered that we were a block away from Chinatown and that out in Lancaster, we had some great Pennsylvania Dutch vendors. And they started to fill the market up with different vendors. And they started to do public events as well. That, along with the growth of the food business and, and food as an interest in the city and suburb suburban areas during the 1980s and the growth in the city really helped keep the market going in those difficult days. I'll tell you what, Gene. You know, you, when you get, th yeah, this is fantastic. Um, so where are we at now, 1980, you said? We're in the 1980s and coming out. Okay, we got one minute, and then we have questions because we're fascinated by this topic. Okay. So go ahead, Gene. Okay. So from the 1980s, the next thing that really impacted was the convention center being built. And there were a lot of young entrepreneurs that came into the market at that point. Uh, Jack Treatment of Old City Coffee, Harry Ox was there, and they really took a leadership to force the city into keeping the market open and making it part of the convention center. In 1989, the convention center opened and kept the Reading Terminal going, where the convention center authority was established and kept the Reading Terminal going as we know it today, and invested $30 million to bring it to where it is today. Today, it is a thriving mecca of 
foodies, tourists, seeing over 100,000 shoppers a week pre-COVID. It's the third most popular tourist attraction in Philadelphia behind the Liberty Bell and Independence Mall. I mean, it, it is an amazing destination. It is an amazing, diverse market with all the cultures that Philadelphia represented. Um, in the market, we have ice cream, meat, cheese, seafood, honey, Spanish goods, condiments, olives, vegan, herbal medicines and foods, general stores, as well as 13 Pennsylvania Dutch vendors. We have a juice bar, six local distilleries or wineries, five bakeries, two coffee vendors, including one I feel is the best cup of coffee in the city. And we have 24 amazing restaurants. That is, and that what is a better place for a foodie to come. Absolutely. And Gene, I want to thank you so much because in radio we are on time constraints. Uh, we want to thank you so much. Gene will be a regular contributor, and he will give, be giving you basically a history lesson uh, about food and culture uh, every few weeks. On the 22nd, what are you looking at, Gene? What do you want to talk about? So at 22nd, we're going to talk um, about a couple Christmas um, customs, in particular one, the seven fish dinner that we do nice. in the Italian sections of Philadelphia. That's going to be As awesome. And uh and then we also talk about a Lithuanian one that's called Kachios that is also very similar to that. Oh, my goodness. So Gene, Gene I, that, I, that was an outstanding segment. Thank you so much. If I have one minute, can I give you a couple plugs real quick? Yeah, for abs- that's what I was about to say. Go ahead. Sure. So one of the key reasons the market succeeds today is because of their events division. The market could do an event for up to two thousand people inside and another thousand outside so people interested in the market can reach out to the market at uh, www.allaboutevents.us if you're interested in the great series of cooking classes and i know next week comes out their winter segment they could reach out at ticketleap.com and just put in the keyword city kitchen or ready terminal and all that'll come up and if you're interested in supporting a great local vendor that's been there for a long time, I highly suggest, and I know Anders is a great coffee lover, um, www.oldcitycoffee.com, small roaster that never has coffee that's more than 48 hours old, the beans. So um, great gee- vendors. Gene, can I also yep. have you plug the fact that um, if somebody is traveling to Philadelphia that and they want to check out Reading Terminal Market, they can also take a tour? Sure, absolutely. So you could do tours um, through several different methods, but you can arrange a tour through the Reading Terminal Market at readingterminalmarket.com. You can also arrange for private tours through me, through any of my social media platforms, um, or you know, reach out to me through email. Or there is also um, a city food tours site that also does some ready terminal market tours. But I think your best suggestion would be just to go to the terminal, uh, readyterminalmarket.com or allabouteventsus and you can get a range of tour of the market. Thank you, Gene. Uh, and I want to thank you. We'll see you on the 22nd, my friend. Thank you. Okay, my man. I'll talk, talk to you. you.
All right, that was Gene with a great history lesson of the Reading Terminal. We're going to go to break. We have a guest waiting, uh, and we'll be right back. You can now listen to all of our past Dining on a Dime podcast, plus see over 600 restaurant reviews with photos by going to www.phillyrestaurantreviews.com. Okay, we are back. We're excited about our next guest. It is 196flavors.com. We're going to be talking to Mike uh, from 196flavors.com. want to let our listeners know that Gene will be a regular contributor to the show. Uh, he will be on uh, every few weeks, and he will give you a history of culinary. Right now, we are so excited to have our next guest, Mike. From 196flavors.com. Mike, tell us about this unbelievable website, my friend. All right. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Really, really appreciate it. So, yeah, to tell you uh, briefly what uh, 196 Flavors is all about, we, uh, we actually started about eight years ago. And what started really as a fun project to document um, a recipe from every single country in the world, which we actually finished in about a year and a half turned into uh, a much loftier project where we have the ambition to become the Wikipedia of authentic and traditional recipes from every single country in the world. So we currently have about 1,100 recipes. And when I say recipes, we you know, I obviously talk about not only the recipe, but also an article about the recipe that explains the origin of the recipe, the history, how, how it has evolved over time. Um, and we have those articles and recipes in three different languages. So we're pretty unique in that sense. We're really trying to reach a very global audience and really trying to become the authority, uh, a credible authority on the Internet that's going to provide you with the authentic representation of a specific recipe uh, from every single country in the world. Now, Mike, um, thank you for joining us. I am Amaris Pollock. I'm the food photojournalist um, and one of the experts on on the show. I also saw that you you and your wife Vera wrote a book. Is that correct? Yeah, she's not my wife. Actually, she's my best friend. Uh, oh, but I'm we, so we sorry. did write a few books. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, but we did write a few books. Uh, we started this year, actually. We, uh, we have four books currently available on the website. Uh, we started with North Africa. Uh, we also have the Middle East and Southeast Asian cuisine. And we just released our Indian or sub Indian subcontinent ebook. So what we do every time with each ebook and each ebook is pretty exhaustive in the sense that we, talk about um, the cuisine of every country in those regions in length, uh, giving kind of the representative idea of, about the techniques, the ingredients, the spices, uh, different, you know, flagship um, um, recipes, if you will. Uh, and we also have obviously recipes and articles for each of those countries. So each book is about four to 500 pages, pretty exhaustive. They are only available as uh, an ebook, so in digital format, which makes it easier and saves the planet. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, they're very exhaustive. And when you buy those ebooks, you pretty much have um, a very good idea of the authentic recipes that really represent the region and uh, each country. And what's really unique about the, the format is because they are 
available in, e- in an ebook format. When you purchase the ebook, you actually have access um, to the update. So there's no need to buy another ebook for a second or third edition. We, we have the ambition to actually add recipes uh, as we continue, you know, um, traveling the world virtually. And uh, you, you, when you buy the, the ebook, you will have access to the um, updates with the same uh, download link. Okay. Now, uh, Mike, uh, I'm Matt, um, one of our contributors here. Uh, I'm wondering, because I'm looking through the site, and today is actually uh, sort of our Hanukkah-themed episode. Um, and now, I've noticed that you guys have a section of the site where you talk about uh, holiday-themed dishes. Do you have a specific one that, out of the ones you've compiled, that's uh, maybe a favorite uh, amongst the Hanukkah collection? Sure, Matt. So I know, obviously, in the U.S., everybody knows about latkes, but I'm not going to talk about latke because you're going to see latke recipes popping up everywhere on every single magazine. I'm going to talk about Senj. So Senj is actually uh, a Moroccan uh, donut, uh, some kind of a fritter that is very, very representative of North African cuisine. Very easy to make. Uh, but as you know, Hanukkah, I'm not going to go over the story, but it has to do with oil and the fact that oil... Um, you know, burned for, was able to burn for eight days. And there's a lot of recipes from Hanukkah that actually makes use, make use of oil. Latke is obviously one. Uh, Senj is another one. But there's a lot of recipes that make use of this kind of, you know, staple ingredient or flagship ingredient for the, for the holiday. That's fantastic. Now, what about some of the recipes that are on, are on your site? Uh, what are your more popular recipes that you find? So it's interesting because uh, when you ask for popular recipes, you know, like a lot of websites, it has to do with not getting technical, but it has to do with SEO, which is search engine optimization and Google. And if we rank pretty high on a recipe, obviously it's going to be quote unquote popular because people are going to find us more easily. So the ones that are popular um, are one which we rank really well for in the English language is one Persian recipe called Hormesadri. I happen to live in Los Angeles and Los Angeles is the largest, has the largest Iranian population after Tehran. So I became, yeah, I became familiar with the uh, Persian uh, cuisine 20 years ago, 22 years ago when I moved here. And Hormesadri is probably one of their most famous dishes along with the kebabs, of course. But homisabzi is this very, very unique and delicious dish made with uh, probably five or six different herbs um, that are um, sautéed. And then you make a stew out of this base with um, red beans, beef usually, and uh, a unique ingredient, which is very um, um, used in Persian cuisine, but also in the Middle East called limo amani, which is uh, dried lime. And uh, with this ingredient, it actually gives a sour taste to the um, to the stew. Uh, and the stew is served, obviously, with rice, being a Persian stew. Um, and it's a dish that I started becoming familiar with about 20 year, 22 years ago uh, that I actually love making, and my kids love it too. And let's personalize this, Mike. Uh, how was 196 Flavors started? What were the circumstances behind it? We have about five minutes, but I want you to dig into this. Uh, how was it started? Sure. Yep. Yeah. So it's very interesting because Vera, who is not my wife, but became my best friend, uh, she lives in Paris. I live here in LA. And what happened is we met on, out of all places on a Facebook group 
um, of about now, I think it's about 30,000 people, but uh, believe it or not, it was mostly women. Um, and it was a kosher recipe sharing group. We became um, close, although virtually, because we shared obviously the same passion for um, food, but also because we're very curious in nature. We love to discover new recipes from different parts of the world. And we also are what I would call grammar, grammar Nazis in French, but also in English. So we became, you know, friends virtually. And the circumstances of the creation of the, of the website is kind of bittersweet because I happened to uh, go to France as my mother was dying and she eventually passed away. But um, Vera, as, as well as a lot of other women who were part of the group, um, created some kind of a chain where they came to visit me and my family at the hospital. Then, you know, after my, my mother passed away, we, you know, started seeing each other and so on. And then fast forward a few months later, I came, obviously came back to the U.S. Uh, where I live. Six months later, I call her and I'm like, you know, I have this crazy idea about cooking a dish from every country in the world and documenting it in this blog. And at the time, it was nothing more than a blog, a fun project to do between friends and nothing more. And it became what it is today. We, Like I said, we have 1,100 recipes. We are going to surpass about 15 million page views or recipes accessed uh, in 2020. Uh, believe it or not, we had obviously a, a huge peak in traffic at the beginning of COVID because everybody was home. And what do you do when you're home? You actually cook and bake. Absolutely. And, um, everybody was actually uh, on the website. And especially now that with COVID, uh, let's talk about where they can find it. It's 196, the number, flavors.com, right, yeah. Mike? That is correct. So 196flavors.com, what, uh, that's the website where what, you, you what can about, access what all about, the recipes. What about Facebook and Twitter and all that? What else you got? What are, what are your tags? Yeah, so 196flavors for all the platforms, all the social media channels. Our most active channel is actually our Facebook group where we have a pretty vibrant community of about 3,000 members from all over the world. Uh, with experts that actually moderate the uh, the group with providing their expertise and, and you can ask questions and share your recipes and so on. And I, I want you to end it, end your interview by telling people if there's one thing you would like our audience to know about 196flavors.com, what would that one thing be? Sure. Uh, think of us as the online credible source for every single authentic and traditional recipe uh, in every country in the world. And before we end, um, I just wanted to uh, to say that I actually, uh, I'm offering a, a 25% discount for all our eBooks until the end of the year uh, for anybody who is listening. Uh, all you have to do is go to our website, 196flavors.com and use the promo code D-O-A-D, Dining on a Dime, and you will have 25% of um, any of our ebooks, actually. That is fantastic. So you can get an ebook with 25% discount. Just put in DOAD at the 196flavors.com website. That is fabulous. Thank you so much for your generosity, Mike. Thank you again. I uh, really, really appreciate uh, you um, inviting me to the show. Um, everybody have great holidays. That's a great time to cook and to bake um, with the kids, with the family. So, however, uh, we have a lot of holiday recipes as well. Michael, I can't thank you enough. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Thanks again, guys.
All right. A, thanks, Mike. Thank and that Mike. was 196flavors.com, 196, the number, flavors.com. Put in, put in the promo code DOAD to get a 25% discount on these fabulous cookbooks. COVID-19 going on. A lot of people cooking at home. This is the website for you. Amherst Pollock tags. You can find me all over the social media platforms, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, IG, all of it, um, using either my handle, which is A-R-P-O-L-L-O-C-K-U-S, or my name, Amaris Pollock. At Maritea Tags. At Maritea22 at Twitter, Instagram, uh, Untapped, LinkedIn, uh, check out the Last Out Media Network, our beautiful studio here, as always, housing us. And check out the blog, Frequent Contributions from myself. Contributions. I think we've got a cheesesteak tour we in the drafts, I noticed. In the drafts, and we Kevin also Wilson. have a commercial for you guys for your projects that you have going on played <laughs> right after the show. We want to thank everyone for joining us. Next week, another fabulous show. Have a great week, everyone. Sporting Chance Podcast. Crack one open and give this podcast a chance. It is a weekly rundown of Philly sports, a dive into craft beer, and a peek at the sports memorabilia collection of Matthew Maratea, which is also me. Join me as I am a lifelong fan, a craft beer industry worker, and a sports writer as I'm trying to tie together all of my passions for give you, the listeners, a refreshing look at the world of sports and beer. You can tune in on iTunes. Uh, Anchor, Spotify, and any number of other podcasting apps. So be sure to check it out and look for it weekly, the Sporting Chance Podcast. At Cook Unity, they believe food is a great connector and should be ready in minutes when you are. That's why I'm introducing you to a personalized meal subscription service tailored to your dietary needs with over 150 meals to choose from per week. At Cook Unity, you can eat like you have a private chef delivering meals to your door. And if you sign up using the code A-R-P-O-L-L-O-C-K-U-S in all caps, you can get $30 off your first and second week's order. So sign up at cookunity.com and begin eating well without effort.